critical thinking is an absolute superpower. You can't just believe everything you read. You can't believe everything that comes out of these machines. They're mm -hmm. very immature still, right? So, so, so we actually get back to kind of first principles of being curious, being experimental, critical thinking, you know, a lot of science brain. You'll be amazed how important the humanities brain is to the process we're going to go through. Like law and 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 ethics have kind of moved apart from each other in this space. There's this need for it to come closer together. There's going to be a massive need for a human in the loop for a very long time. Welcome to the Search and Succeed podcast. I'm Rob Glass, managing partner of Hunston Partners. We are so fortunate to share many journeys with some exceptional people throughout their careers, people whom are thriving in their area of expertise. And on this podcast, we'll be chatting with them about how they perceive and strive for success within their industry and their life. I hope you enjoy. Today on the podcast, we have Dale Williamson. Dale's a great conversationalist, and my connects with Dale always lead to me learning about five new books every time we speak. Bit of background, he grew up in South Africa, a super strong education with a master's degree in biotechnology, and is a published data scientist. His working life has been within industry and professional services, and his career to date is accomplished currently sitting as the Chief Technology Officer for EMEA at Databricks. Dale offers years of commercial experience in technology and data expertise generally. And with his combination of science and technology, Dale's able to add significant value to his clients and organization. We hope you enjoy listening as we explore Dale's thinking on all things data, technology, life, and his versions of success. Dale, so wonderful to be here with you today. Really cool to be here too. And uh, yeah, I've, I've just, our conversations generally are insane. They never recorded. So yeah. I can't wait to see where this one goes. I know that you've been traveling and you've been under the uh, under the gun and you've got meetings either side of this conversation. So, you know, we hugely appreciate your time uh, and also just the headspace of jumping out of everything you do and then jumping into to this podcast. So, you know, as I said in my intro, Dale, you always give us so much to think about. Yeah, it's going to be really good to get into this one today. I call that kind of being ambidextrous, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's taken a new level this year. Yeah, for sure. Something I always ask everyone at the beginning of the podcast is around the fundamental nature of this podcast, which is about success and looking for success. And we all have our own version of it. So. Dale, when you hear the phrase, when we've talked about search and succeed, when you hear it, what does it mean to you? I mean, jokingly, like you you, you said when we were just chatting now, I, I seem to issue lots of books. Search for me is very much about that kind of curiosity and continuous learning. I don't think you can be a leader today unless you have this constant sort of search for knowledge, search for new ways of doing things, search for like how how... How could this be done better? So, and 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 how can I sort of elevate to the next level? 
succeed, I think, is is just experimenting. I'm I'm a scientist by nature, and I'm naturally curious. Um, so I find one of, one of my favorite sort of areas is uh, thinking about leading without authority. So I, let's say I have uh, I work in an ecosystem where I, I I don't get to call the shots in every sort of thing, which I think most of us don't realize. There's only a certain part of our day job that's in our control. So succeed, I think, for me right now is how do I control the things I can't control and accept the things I can't control, but influence the things I can't control so that things move in the right sort of direction. And that's where my curiosity tends to channel. So it's sort of back and forth. It's a very, very cool phrase, uh, but that's where my head went. No, I appreciate that. And I say it to everyone, but it's kind of becoming my thing a little bit, but we are all looking for our own version of success fundamentally. Mm. Inside work, outside work, life, generally happiness and how we achieve it. You've got such an interesting background. We know that you are a chief technology officer. We know that you are heavily entrenched in the world of data and artificial intelligence, which is such a hot topic right now. But how did you you and I have spoken about this before, but for people listening as well, that the education that you had, Dale, you're a published data scientist in the field of protein molecular modeling. And, you know, you are, you know, just a scientist by nature. How did you get from the education that you had into the world that you have ended up in working? It's it's not as, I mean, a lot of people kind of look at it and think, hang on a sec, that's a bit weird. Like, how, how, how did that happen? I've, I've always been a technologist. I mean, I've, I've been coding. I remember like my parents bought me a Texas instrument when I was like four and I was playing games. And then I went, actually, I don't like these games. How can I find other games? So I was, you know, copying things from magazines. I didn't, couldn't even read at the time. I could just copy like that letter looks like that letter. Yeah. I mean, I probably like if somebody does time in motion study, it took forever. Like my parents probably like, what is he doing? Did I they just buy you a... that because you asked them to it for, or yeah, yeah. I was just, I was just like fascinated by this thing. Like we'd go into a store and I'd just be like gravitating to the electronics. My mother was a scientist, science teacher at school, so there was always like experiments and chemistry sets and stuff like that. So, so like growing up, I always had this natural curiosity. I grew up in it was born sort of Zimbabwe and then grew up in South Africa. So I was always in the bush and, you know, I was always like with animals and, you know, just watching how things evolved and stuff like that. So I think the science thing just caught on. I had a natural aptitude for it. I just really enjoyed it. Uh, and the electronics thing always was something that I did. I loved the, the more the software side of it rather than the hardware side of it. That was just, kind of from day one. So when you kind of tease that out, like through the evolution of my life over sort of four and a half decades, there is a total common thread. Like you think of an organism and you think of an organization, you know, they're both system of systems. I just get morbidly fascinated by the interactions. Um, You know, humans are systems of systems. Humans as teams are systems of systems. Has, and, and it just goes to bigger order effects. And mm-hmm. you can kind of draw an analogy to like cells and, you know, lower than that proteins. So that's like, it's super fascinating. Like I've always found yeah. there are ways to draw analogies between things. But when you come from a sort of biochemistry background and you work with companies and organizations, you can kind of see where 
the the gaps are, the frictions are. Because, I mean, humans are pretty incredible, you know, and things that we are able to do, you know, like two people can come together and make a child, which is a very complex system. And you don't need a change management program for that. And so, I mean, yeah, you might need a midwife at the end, but generally it's like, it's, it's, yeah. it's a relatively small team that creates a very complex thing. And then you go and look at, look at organizations, it's a huge monster and it's very, very hard. So it's like, I, I love that kind of the, 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 the physics of it, the, the dynamics of it. Um, which is why I do what I do. I just enjoy it. Um, the role I have is super, super cool because I get to travel around. I've been to 15 countries this year. I get to talk about data is almost the connective tissue between, you know, like what tech does and what humans do for their kind of day job um, as we digitize things more and more. I mean, it used to be paper and then they become data. And right now we are in one of the most exciting times ever. And I, I just, I kind of love what I do. I've got two little girls and I, I, my wife and I are both totally fascinated by this topic. So the conversations in the household tend to, you know, balance back and forth about what's going on. But what's cool about having two little girls and seeing the way the world's going is you're not doing it like without thinking of them. And that's super cool too, because you're coming from the perspective of how do I, like almost like how medicine sort of came about, like do no harm is the core tenant of medicine. Well, do no harm should be the core tenant of AI, but don't stop it because actually it's going to make humans, you know, way more productive and, and, and it's going to change the world. So yeah, that's a way to see it. I know that's completely meta. But, you know, a lot of people ask the same questions. So yeah, and it's, it's how your brain a works. A hard answer. Yeah, and it makes you unique in your market, I think, because, yeah, there's a there's definitely, you know, a collaboration there. And the human meets digital element part is something that is intertwining so much more. And in 20 years from now, it, 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 I don't know what it's going to look like, but it kind of feels like the two are, are going to be, you know, to some degree you know, part of the same thing in many respects. Mm. Who knows what that's going to look like? Hopefully not Terminator, but you, you kind of feel like we're going it's, quite a little bit. It's it's funny how you said that because I've, I've just been at an event in Lisbon and it was actually kind of a very different type of event. So I had some of the biggest AI companies in the world, like around a table having dinner and the conversation went in this direction, like what is five years from now? What is 10 years from now? And human brain interfaces definitely came up in the topic of the conversation. Because like, and even the brain itself, you know, if you think about the brain, you know, it's, it's, it's that big, quite literally, like two hands together. And it is an insanely powerful machine. Like think about how you're able to recall memories from like, like a smell will recall a memory. You know, a lot of people talk about AI and they're like, oh yeah, AI. I'm like, to do that is going to be incredibly Incredibly complicated, but how AI augments that? I mean, we actually only know how to switch a brain on and off, um, and that's that's kind of anesthesiologists. But outside of that, we know very little about the human brain. We know very little about how that machine works. As a biochemist, you know, I'm totally fascinated by this. Also, counter movement of synthetic biology. Uh, if you then Add, add AI to that, you throw a bit of robotics in. I mean, there are so many converging uh, different 
technologies that are coming at us. Uh, I mean, the printing press was one, and that did a huge thing for the world. Mm. The internet was one, and that did a huge thing for the world. This is like, there's like 20 things going on. And when I talk about the brain, I'm actually delving into the realm of quantum. So with this group, this was such a weird conversation because we were like, you know, are we, are we going to, you know, are we going to be the strongest species? Are we going to go, are we going to like, you know, suddenly find something that replaces us on the food chain? Um, and, and these, these things, and going back to the parenting thing, right. I've got two small kids. They're lovely little girls. They're younger than five. Like, what does this how do we do this responsibly so we don't kind of replace ourselves super yeah. fascinating no one no one has an answer is, is basically the summation everyone has some people yeah. are scared out of their minds and other people are actually kind of going yeah i'll plug a thing into my brain no problem and and this this seems to be the way this conversation around ai goes right you, you start talking about one thing and then just go off on a tangent into another and then into the ethical side of things and then into the the government application side of things and it it, it just really is a, a conversation that has so many prongs to it that mm. you know we could probably sit here and and list five or six different podcasts that we can do and spend an hour talking on each subject but i think just to give everyone listening a little bit more background as to what you're doing today dale can you can you just share with us a little bit about what your role at Databricks is? I'm the EMEA field CTO. I travel the world to meet with customers who often sit in the executive suite and are trying to figure out how to use data and AI to you know transform their business. Transform is a very kind of wrinkly word. I hate using it, but in effect it's it's we do things like this today. How how do we use this stuff to be, you know, way better at what we do? We've seen these big companies that have hit the trillion dollar mark. Um, some are because they're built on AI, you know, mm -hmm. like Nvidia a couple of weeks ago. Some are um, because they use AI internally. They use data at the core, you know, and so Databricks. We are a data and AI uh, managed service. Uh, we do data management. We do AI. Our origin story is AI. We're the original founders. They solved an AI problem like machine learning, you know, through a distributed computer engine. How that relates to my background was I was struggling with the same thing doing proteomics, and it was like 30 days to get a result. The technology that was created by Databricks you know, really revolutionized how and optimized the time factor and this and, and made it a lot simpler. That doesn't mean it's simple, but over time, Databricks in the last 10 years has has broadened, has grown up and, and, and really kind of created this platform. The platform sits across, you know, different uh, infrastructures. So like we, we, we can run on the three hyperscaler clouds. We're, you know, announcing deals with like uh, Dell and, and, and new partnerships with like SAP and we're doing things with, um, with, with Oracle now and Cloudflare. So, so we're like this interoperable data layer where data is in open format. We do, we're not a storage engine. 
so the data is not stored by us. It is processed by us and created and converted into a common standard format that literally flows around. Traditionally, that is one of the biggest areas of cost to most organizations, moving mm -hmm. data from A to B. There's like 400 proprietary database engines in the world today. Um, so so in, in essence, Databricks removes that proprietary database engine need for storage of data. Mm -hmm. in, in essence, it pushes database platforms up to be more usage-based rather than storage-based because we standardize how that data is stored, we standardize how it's all kind of formatted. And then there's other adjacent things that we do. So like going back to the AI story, we, we are able to uh, use AI in the product. You're able to create AI on the product. So there's kind of a dual purpose there. Mm -hmm. and, in, and in doing so, we've been able to create an incredibly price performant way of processing, uh, curating, whether it's batch or streaming or events or any speed, any volume, any type. So it's not just text, it's images, it's sound data. Like imagine the ability to sort of process sound data in the same way as you process text data, uh, but on the same code base, on the same um, technology stack. So it unifies a lot of silos that have traditionally managed data in your organization. It governs many silos of, of data that's had to be because the standard allows you to kind of create a lot more kind of cohesion around lineage and, and access control and things like that. Um, on, the, on, the, on the sort of machine learning end, like there's this idea that when you process data, you then hand it to a team that create insights from the data. That only the kind of is real and static use cases. But if you think about most of the world, it's dynamic. Things are moving fast. So you want the data and the machine learning to be kind of almost chained together. Um, and, and that's a very sort of a special sort of place where like, you know, you can use machine learning to do things that functionally are really, really hard. Actually, we facilitate that because it's on the same platform. Yeah. Uh, you want to do analytics. You can do that kind of on the fly. You want to do that as part of a stream. That's easy enough to do too. So there's a there's a ton of variability and different things, but it's in a unified experience. So you're bringing teams together that traditionally would have operated in silos. So you're de decluttering and defragmenting like how you organize your data, mm -hmm. and you're defragmenting and decluttering how you use your data to create a common way of doing that and a standard way of doing that. So it's an incredible platform. Yeah. Um, and and we have nine thousand customers, so that means we see, you know, the 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 Fortune five hundreds and how they're trying to standardize. But we also see the 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 digital natives and the cool things that they're doing. And one of the most fascinating sort of things I I expect to see in the next sort of six months, and it's actually something we've already witnessed over the last six months, is the number of three person companies. They're actually touting that we'll hit a three-person company unicorn, but like more often, there's already a company that just did something where you know I think it's two people, and you know they already have a revenue of fifty million. Wow. Like, and it's it's because they're using they're using technologies like ours to simplify how they build a business.
And within your capacity, so you're the CTO and in a CTO capacity and have been for some time, Dale, and we're keen to understand we're quite career obsessed and role obsessed in our everyday conversations. So what what does your role entail? And also, you know, how does your role differ to like a CIO's role within an organization for argument's sake? So it's a very good question, right? And it's one where a lot of people don't really know where the lines are because in the data world, there's actually a third role. There's a third sort of prong to that, which is the chief data officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually now there's a chief data and analytics officer. So it's like, it's, 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 it's very confusing to a lot of people. And the chief data officer is actually more like the, the eventual future chief operating officer. So like, you know, you can kind of see how the world that they're doing is how do we create operations that's more data-driven, more kind of led by data, decisions are made by data. So we're less functionally operating, we're more intelligently operating. So there's kind of bringing this, and that's the CDO sort of catalytic change, similar to the predecessor of the CDO, which was the chief digital officer, yeah. again, confusing. Um which was to catalyze the digitization of businesses. Um, a CIO has, is a well-established role. They've, they've earned a, that, that kind of seat at the board. Um, and they're almost the, 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 the overseer of how information is managed through the organization. Um, and the CTO is trying to bring new technology into the organization and trying to kind of almost disrupt uh, and change the team structures and 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 there's there's a there's almost like an analysis that's constantly going on is how do how do we product how, how do we embed technology within products how do we you know do a lot of different things so it can mean different things depending on what business you're in mm. um in, in our capacity, we have a, a, a group of CTOs. So we have our product CTO, Matei. He is an incredible, you know, science brain. Um, he's a Stanford professor. He invented many of the open source uh, frameworks that have been donated by Databricks. Um, and he constantly, he, I mean, he's almost kind of planning 10 years into the future. Uh, so he's bringing these very technical sort of pieces into our platform um, and figuring out how that sort of raises the stack. Um, the, the field CTO offers are focused far more on the customer and their change. There has mm-hmm. to be a kind of how do we take our technology and figure out how it feeds into your strategy. And, and that strategy will want to adopt data at the core because most companies have accepted that. And now everyone's realizing the power of AI in those strategies. So we spend a lot of time with like with customers mm. um, as more of a translation layer. Um, that, that's not a typical CTO role, but it's actually what a CTO role is evolving to is really understanding the demand, really understanding, you know, the change, really understanding how we how we are going to move the like whatever we're yeah whatever we're selling our value proposition. What does that have to evolve to to do? How do we make things simpler? You know, how do we make things relevant? How do you do and, that, Dale? How do you foster uh, you know a, a culture of innovation and 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 encourage your clients 
So I was keen to maybe understand how it works internally, but then if you're working very much with the customer, how do you how do you encourage your clients to be able to to embrace new technologies and digital transformations that they need to keep moving forward? So, so, so Databricks is arguably one of the most innovative companies I've ever ever been a part of. Um, I, I've, I've never seen something move at the velocity of just constantly kind of not just pushing the data movement forward, um, but also thinking about our own disruption, right? So for example, um, our founders were a bunch of PhDs out of UC Berkeley and, and they disrupted the entire data market out of academia. Mm. So, so we know fully <laughs> that that could happen to us just as much. So we, so we keep, we keep a, a, a strong footprint and a strong sort of sense in academia. We also uh, appreciate that the open source movement, it, it won the, the operating system war. Linux is now the pervasive thing. It disrupted DOS, which everybody kind of grew up with. or well, not everyone. Um, those of us that are my age grew up with. Um, and, and now today, Linux is like de facto, and it's an open standard. It's an open source uh, layer. So, so, so that's kind of also important, right? We all, so, so those are communities that are driving, you know, where the market's going. So you've got academia, you've got these communities. You also have the market itself. So, so, so the customers, like where are they wanting to go? What are they wanting to do? How are they wanting to change? Um, and we will throw in. So when ChatGPT kind of launched in October, we immediately launched a Tiger team focused on LLM adoption. And it wasn't just you know, how do we want to capitalize on the movement? Because we already could build these things internally on open source, not on these big, massive monoliths. Um, so there is a counter movement. and We already had recognized that there are small, specific, you know, language models and image models and a whole bunch of other things, as opposed to these massive, huge machines trained on millions of dollars with a massive moat. And they're actually incredibly powerful. So, so we've been launching these things into uh, into open source ecosystems since then. We've also been using them internally. So we would kind of be going, okay, you know, what would this mean for us? Like, are we going to get disrupted by this? Because these things make things a lot simpler to work with data because it's kind of it containerizes data. But, you know, um, so there's a bunch of really interesting sort of aspects to being paranoid around our own disruption spotting where disruption comes from, you know, and constantly trying to improve and, and, and enhance and, and, and do things better. And, and we've grown now to like you know, almost 6,000 people. So it means that that's become a lot harder than it was maybe five or six years ago when, when Databricks was a hell of a lot smaller. Yeah. But we haven't lost that innovative muscle. Taking that then onto the customer side, most customers have forgotten how to innovate. Um, they've forgotten how to exercise that muscle. Uh, everyone knows the famous Kodak story, but what they also don't know is maybe like 20 years before the Kodak story, they actually were the first to invent the digital camera, which is kind of insane. And, and, and if you go to the original founder of Kodak's vision, it wasn't, we're going to only sell these products that are like, you know, film uh, cameras. It was much bigger than that. Uh, and they lost that along the way. 
and and they lost that ability to disrupt themselves. And and I, and I see that a lot with 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 a lot of companies that I work with today. Is they've they've become very bureaucratic. They've become very political. You know, there's Game of Thrones going on internally. Yeah. Uh, and 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 often that sort of getting in your own way. You spend so much time, you know, with this wall of clay. It's actually the great grandson of Henry Ford uh, quoted that. Um, he's he's been touted as being a refounder of Ford, and and what he did was he um, he had to fight through this wall of clay on how the business had run over four generations since his great grandfather, um, and that was an incredibly hard thing to disrupt and a hard thing to break. Yeah. Um, most companies really struggle with that. Things take a long time. Like just gathering requirements takes a long time. Just trying to build a business case takes a long time. Everyone's watched the pace of AI over the last six months. Can we really afford to take so much time anymore to organize ourselves and, and actually disrupt ourselves? So I've been in a lot of conversations over the last sort of six months on reinvention of your organization it's not even about transformation it's around reinvention it's like mm-hmm. how does this are, are we about to and this was a big topic at that dinner party was we expect to have way more codecs in five years time and a lot of companies are going how do i avoid that how do i avoid that yeah that ability to be agile that big companies just don't have and they haven't had ever since certainly I've been working for the last 20 odd years, because how many times you hear big company, you know, like turning like a, you know, a, a tanker from a turnaround perspective um, that actually you might start to see, you just mentioned there, like the two and three person companies and the ability, and that's particularly small, but the ability to be agile, to be able to move at the pace that technology is moving and innovate, as you said there, you know, perhaps those that you know those are the organisations that are going to set the blueprint for success in the future, rather than maybe the larger corporates, perhaps. Uh, so I agree and I disagree. I agree yeah. they're going to set a blueprint for how an organisation can be quite lean, but you've got to remember, okay, and there's something super interesting happening in the AI movement, and and Twitter and Reddit are like the two first companies that have sort of shown this. So. And I'm not talking about their organization structures. I'm talking specifically about the paywalls that they've shoved in front of their APIs. Yeah. So a lot of people don't realize like OpenAI was trained on the, on the corpus of open data on the internet, uh, which is also accounts for a lot of the crazy stuff it tends to spew out. Um, so like that lawyer the other day with like, you know, three cases that were completely made up. Um, and, and that tells us a couple of things. One, the data that it's used is incredibly powerful and incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing it tells us is that you need to use a bit of critical thinking when you use these things because they're not really, like they're incredibly powerful, but they're, the, the guardrails are not perfectly built in place. But we won't dwell on that for a second. What the, the first point is, Reddit and Twitter realized suddenly that they were getting, you know, a lot of their their data was getting sucked out of these APIs into these massive models. Mm-hmm. And they went, hang on a second, we're sitting on a gold, gold mine here, you know? And I, like, if you think of every established company, so I was with a group, you know, recently, and they have an unspeakable amount of data. 
And they have, an, I mean, right now they have like 700 people kind of just managing knowledge. Wow. And if you think about, you know, think about OpenAI managing the entire knowledge base of the internet that you can just prompt and get answers. And yes, with a bit of critical thinking, um, you can sort of really tap into incredible wealth of, of, of information. Mm-hmm. And then you think now over on this side, we've got 700 people kind of, moving knowledge around and making it available to the workforce. So there's an exam question where you have to go, can I do that here? And and that's an incredibly powerful use case for companies that have an unspeakable amount of data is use the stuff on knowledge, get your knowledge kind of built into these things, but don't use the big hard things, the, the, you know, the, these massive knowledge bases because we start to get into an IP conversation. Like how are you make sh- making sure that you build that differentiation on your own data? And if you look at Bloomberg with Bloomberg GPT, they already are kind of moving ahead with this. They've gone, hey, we, we've got a huge amount of value in the data we've got. Let's build our own internal kind of thing and figure it out. Yeah. Um, if, you, if, you look at, if you look at what companies are doing, they're going one, can I tap into that knowledge? And that knowledge can sit in lots of different places. So, you know, um, code bases of the old legacy code. That is huge institutional knowledge from like that dates back many, many years. Um, so tapping into that, but not converting it or to modernize it, more tapping into it to understand it. Um, tapping into you these big file servers that have loads of documents. Uh, I worked, you know, 20 years ago at a major bank in the UK. And I'm certain there's a document I wrote that and some code I wrote that could be pulled in and tell a story of that period of time. And there was a big hack there. So it was like fascinating, right? So, so, so suddenly you have this almost like, it's kind of like archeology span of, of the past. So you have that ability, you can build that muscle and that's safe data. And if you use open models, like what we provide at Databricks, um, you pull them off hugging face, you can build them on the corpus of data you have. And you can do that really easily and cheaply. Like we trained a, a small specific model on three machines for $100. I mean, that's like ridiculously low barrier to entry. Um, and then you've got to start to think about, you know, productivity in the workforce, like how much, how decisions made. Uh, and that could be an, another area of unlocking unspeakable amount of uh, value. Um, start to think about how people could be more human in the loop. You know, we talk about AI replacing people's jobs. To be frank, it's the people that are using AI that are pre- replacing people's jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, the third thing is, that we're investing a lot of money in is, is governance. So like, how do we govern over this stuff? So the do no harm comment I meant earlier. And, and the fourth thing I see a lot of companies starting to play around with is um, what about the opportunities in the back office? So how do I unlock you know, my finance department, my legal department, my compliance department, you know, banks spend like 10% of revenue on compliance for like single digit outcomes. Like there's a very low bar to improve that. And, 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 and that could be a huge area. So, so I think that the big companies today could be starting to really mine through their data 
mm-hmm. because they've got that that's their economic moat over the smaller nimble companies the smaller nimble but there's a lesson to be learned from both and that's where data exchange is going to start to become way more of a real thing like we've talked about it for years data monetization and stuff but it's yet to really move past being an intangible asset on the balance sheet. Some companies are making unspeakable amounts of money from data, like Meta. Other companies are starting to figure out trade and exchange, like the stock markets. Um, so like Deutsche Börse are a major com- customer of ours, Nasdaq's a major customer of ours. They're not moving data around anymore. They're almost kind of subscribing to each other's data. So actually, that's more sustainable, too, because you get less data movement, less processing, less copying and pasting. So that's huge. And that's facilitated through something we call delta sharing. So there's like a ton of really cool stuff that could happen. So I don't think companies are going to die if they can figure out how to get out of their own way. It's the ones that do nothing that I think will be the next five years Kodak's. Just a quick pause to the podcast to share with you a charity very close to our hearts, Prevent Breast Cancer, who are just incredibly passionate about stopping the disease before it starts. Prevent Breast Cancer promote healthier lifestyles, screening and early diagnosis. They make sure 100% of their research funding is focused on preventing breast cancer for future generations. They're the only UK charity entirely dedicated to the prediction and prevention of breast cancer. They're right at the front line in the fight against the disease. And we are right behind them. And those four pillars of change that you talk about, are they are they things that clients of yours, customers of yours are thinking about before you walk through the door? Or is it no. something you're having to open their eyes to? Some will be. But remember, like, people are immediately jumping to like the PR worthy stuff. They're jumping to, you know, customer level stuff. Putting customer data into a large language model is kind of tricky because one, it can't forget. So if that customer exercises the right to be forgotten as part of GDPR, you already got a bit of a problem. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out how not to store it in the model. You also have this hallucination thing. Um, Whereas these four tenants that I'm talking about, the governance, the productivity, you know, the knowledge and the, the, this kind of ecosystem, they're safe spaces. They're almost internal. They're areas that you can, you know, really experiment in a kind of safe space. If you're using smaller specific models and you're using your own data and you you don't have any IP constraints, you can be doing this to build that capability of being more sort of data and AI driven. Um, But you're using your own, you're almost using it to make yourself leaner and you're using it to make yourself better at doing it. And, and in doing so, you remove a huge amount of organizational risk. You remove a lot of like what's holding you back. But it, because it's not the most PR worthy use cases, companies are not thinking about those things first. They're thinking quarter by quarter. Um, and they're thinking, you know, brand awareness and look at me, look at me, I'm doing it too. Yeah. 
but the value that comes out of becoming leaner and tapping into the over speaking amounts of data you already have and, and building that into an easily accessible way and building that AI muscle so that you know, you've got people that know how to do this. When the regulations and the, the maturity of the space starts to grow out, you'll be in a prime position to capitalize on that. Um, so it's more a long game. It's more a two-year program. It's more a five-year program. But in doing so, you're, 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 you're making yourself way more, your, your productivity is improving. I mean, Goldman Sachs, they put out an article saying, you know, the impact of this has about 7% uplift on global GDP. So that's about a $7 trillion uh, GDP uplift in over a 10-year period, just by doing things in a more productive way. Um, Amazing. And if you think about how we work today, we actually work today in, in the same way that was originally mandated by a group that came off a problem Napoleon identified around getting enough boots and was created by Frederick Winslow Taylor. And we've reinvented that a bunch of times, Toyota, Kaizen. We've done it through like Peter Drucker. We've done it through Andy Grove. We've done it through Agile. You know, all of these things are just making faster ways of working 200 years ago. It's different today yeah you think today is harder for ceos than ever or do you actually think yes. that it's actually it, it could be easier to, but depends on the type of ceo uh, and how progressive that ceo is i think it's a very interesting question so i think ceos that are going okay um how, how do i capitalize on this you know they're they're interested but they're cautious. They're not par like paralyzed with fear, but they're paranoid that this is going to really mess with their business. Uh, and this is gonna create um, the ability for other, for, for, for thousands of new companies to form. And we've already watched what happened, you know, with the mobile phone movement and how much disruptions happened. And, you know, the companies that were in the top you know, the top companies 20 years ago are not the same as the ones that are top today. Yeah. Um, so I already know like that there is a, you, you, you can't sit and do nothing. And I think most industries are going to realize like, I mean, if, you, if you're a mining company, you, you are going to have to use this stuff. You're probably going to be less disrupted um, or disruptable, but this could create a huge you know, impact to your uh, to your bottom line, right? Whereas other companies that are more kind of digital, like they have to really think this thing through because mm -hmm. this is this is this is a whole new wave that builds on what they already have. They're already now legacy. Okay, so it's a fascinating thing for a CEO to go through. I had a CEO, and I mentioned this, you know, when we when we started doing the briefing, he he, he said to me, "I'm terrified. Should I be?" And I, I thought for a second, like, how do I answer this? Um, so the first thing I said is, well, they're not alive yet, these AI sort of machines uh, yet. I don't know if they would become alive, but you know, we can't rule that out. Um, hence regulation and governance and self-management yeah. and a whole bunch of things are important. Um, democratizing is massively important for that. But the second thing I said to him is, I would be no more fearful than becoming a parent for the first time because these things don't exactly have a user manual. 
So you want to learn how to use them. You want to get experience of them. You want to really kind of see what they can do. And the, 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 the four things that I outlined allow you, as boring as they are, we call it the quiet AI revolution because it allows you a safe space to kind of learn the stuff like parents when they get home from, you know, having their child and, you know, the, the first two weeks of being absolutely terrified of this little creature that's just like now they're completely responsible for, they yeah. learn, they build that muscle. So, so the next, by the time they have the second child, they're actually quite good at it. Uh, they still don't know what the hell they're doing. No parent knows what they're doing because, you know, like the change happened so fast. Yeah. We're in that world professionally now. Um, so I think the most important thing is that people can't sit still. Like there has to be this, you know, like what we said with search and success at the beginning, like there's got to be this kind of thinking about how, how, how are we constantly improving things? Like, is there a way to do this better? So when yeah. we go into workshops, any workshop, and we were in one yesterday talking about sales enablement, and we're like, how can AI make this better? Our product, we're about to have our summit next week. Mm. I have never seen so many things that are new features, new product lines, new things, just absolute avalanche of innovation. And it's because our product and engineering teams are using AI to make ourselves way more productive. And, and, and that's a step change. Yeah. Mm. And the analogy works, but I suppose the only difference is that you know, you can ask your parents for advice on how to be a parent. You can, you know, join, you know, that parenting has been going on since the dawn of time. Whereas what we're, what we've moved into now for a lot of people is, is completely different. I mean, even just a CEO making use of data, let's just go back a year, right. And data being, you know, as we've discussed before, rightly or wrongly, but termed as the new oil right uh, and, and the importance of it and you know some ceos were still getting used to how do we make use of that and now with artificial intelligence being you know added onto that it's the step change without necessarily the swathes of examples from the past of how to utilize it is probably what's putting people's noses out of joint to some degree or, or bringing the fear in well I mean, there are answers for the for the CEO, right? So this is not as new as everyone thinks it is. Mm. It's just gone mainstream. So at the point of ChatGPT going live, we already had 500 large language models, small specific, open source trained, running very, very boring use cases internally for companies, like classifying, you know, media, to try and figure out like who's saying things about us in the press. Um, things like, there was a really cool one, syndromic surveillance. Um, so like actually looking at the data that's flowing through certain healthcare platforms and looking for kind of certain syndromes and how those sort of surface. We, we've seen it in cybersecurity. So as much as there's CEOs out there that this is brand new and they're trying to get their heads around it, there's a lot of companies um, and, and some, you know, that have been doing this for a very long time. Like when we talked about my academic background, a lot of what we were doing in proteomics was this kind of stuff, not at the same degree. We didn't have the infrastructure, but like we, the theory, the, the, the knowledge of how the stuff works, when you look at 
you know, Databricks as an organization, having 500 of these things already running in production, you know, we, we have a lot of experience already. So, so what we're finding is like CEOs reaching out to us. And you've got to remember that like our company philosophically wants to democratize the stuff for everybody. We don't want to hoard it. We don't want to have it go the same way that like the big, you know, insulin costs like few dollars to make and to buy it it's 250 something so like the, the the total margin is massive and it's because it's it's concentrated to a few uh, the more people that are experimenting with this stuff the more the open source model movement can kind of pick up um, the more people start to really understand it and the more they can educate and influence how they how it can be better regulated and managed and governed and things like that um, so I'm finding the conversations I have with C-suite executives is how do you adopt this stuff? How do you create a safe space to work with, you know, these, these tools? They're not just language models, they're image models. How do you build guardrails around that? How, what does governance look like for this? And, and that's, that's almost kind of helping, helping them to really harness this, but also realize you know, they already can do some of the stuff. So like, I'll often meet big customers of ours and I'm like, you realize you already have the infrastructure for this. You, you can, I, like I, I did a talk to a group out in South Africa, two weeks later, they were already building their own models because they had everything in place. Um, so it's the barrier to entry is not as big as people perceive. Mm. Your options are broader than you think. Um, and the education is something you're tapping into. And that's something that we're, we're really kind of flying around and providing. It's why I've done 15 countries this year. It's why I've spoken to, you know, on average 40 executives a month. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, and, and you talk about education and that's correct. something I really wanted to talk to you about Dale, because quite humbly uh well honestly my education was never it certainly wasn't the same as yours i got a a sport and, and business degree um and that gave me certain platform i suppose to go and do certain things in life but you know what what yours the depth of the education that you had has obviously enabled you to do so much even just as you were talking there i had to google proteomics because i just didn't know what it was so please excuse me on that <laughs> but really interesting stuff but but on the education side right and you, you and i talked off air about this because it's something that you've got two daughters i've got three amazing sons david has got a baby on on the way and has got all that ahead of him and you know, the life and the future of our future generations is so important. How would you, what would you recommend, right? If you were talking to your daughters in a few years time, when they start to think about A-levels and, and degrees and careers, et cetera, what do you, what would you suggest that they focus on based on the world that we see in the next 10 years or so? Look, I, I, I've said this a few times. I've used the, the the exact phrase a few times. And I used this when I was evaluating my my daughter's schools. Critical thinking is an absolute superpower. You can't just believe everything you read. You can't believe everything that comes out of these machines. They're mm -hmm. very immature still, right? So, so, so we actually get back to kind of first principles of being curious, being experimental, critical thinking. You know, a lot of science brain 
you'll be amazed how important the humanity's brain is to the process we're going to go through. Like law and 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 ethics have kind of moved apart from each other in this space. There's this need for it to come closer together. There's going to be a massive need for a human in the loop for a very long time. No different to you know uh, us having a human stand pull levers in an elevator for probably the first twenty years that elevators existed. Um, I don't believe that we're in a place where we can just let this stuff loose. Um, so I think more and more the sort of education around it's important that we're doing our part in that we're we're creating education programs. We've our, our product CTO Mateus just launched a MOOC um, that's gone live on how to actually do this yourself. It's amazing how many people. I talked about proteomics, right? The barrier to entry when I was doing this stuff was you pretty much had to write command line code. Um, you don't have to do that today. This stuff is way easier to learn yourself. Mm-hmm. Any, uh, my, my wife was about to go back to work after maternity leave. And I said to her, you need to learn prompt engineering. You know, you need to kind of ask. I, I use these tools all the time. Um, We've got internal ones for knowledge and things like that. We're trying to embed them more and more through the organization. It's got to become part of your rhythm of, of, of doing things. Our kids are actually going to be showing us stuff, I reckon. But like every big movement, you know, the, the world will find a way to form new jobs. You just have to find the right skills to learn to be ready for those new jobs. You know, like you said in the beginning, I, I studied biochemistry. I'm a CTO in a data company. It's easy to figure out like how to connect those dots. Um, there's a lot of people that have physics degrees that are now management consultants. There's a lot of people that have geography degrees that are investment bankers. It, it's it, it, there's the, the the first principles knowledge prepare everybody for the wave of what's coming. Um, philosophy students in Silicon Valley are doing pretty well nowadays because ethics is a major topic in this world, like autonomous vehicles. There's a lot of ethical debates going on. Mm. So I, I don't think that this, ha- I mean, what, what I do think is the education system is going to have a lot of fun trying to na- navigate this because these things answer questions better than anyone. It says more about the test than it says about anything else. Um, but I, I think, I think, you know, if we can educate more and more people, uh, and we have, as I said, programs that are helping to kind of make that more accessible to people, I I think you'll find that like, it's not as frightening as everyone's making it out to be. And I'm not saying it's not something we shouldn't approach. Um, there are a lot of experts that have called out the concerns. The more people that are knowledge about, about it, the more we can actually figure out those concerns. Yeah. So so I, I don't believe this is something that should be should be closed off. Because if it closes off, it'll go underground. Yeah. Um, and and we don't want that. That definitely we don't want. So I think I, I would be leaning into that curiosity that I mentioned right at the beginning. I'd be you know, doing courses on this stuff. I'd be, you know, playing with these things every day. Use it, use it for daily life, like meal plans. Use it for like, you know, 
figuring out how to build a contract for something. You like it's crazy how many weird things you and learn how to ask how to communicate. Yeah, uh, prompt, prompting is super important. Yeah, I, I mean, you talk before about what we talked about companies not being agile enough and changing and innovating. Uh, and and the education system, I think, probably is involved in that. If not, perhaps the the hardest to turn around um, and, and and get to grips with, and get the you know the immediate generation now to be learning how to critically think and be curious, and also which direction of travel and which to go in from a a learning perspective, and then perhaps a career perspective. I agree. It's I'm super excited about what's going on with this whole movement. Mm. Um, I'm also somewhat cautious, which is why the, the communications we're having with a lot of customers, with a lot of people is, you know, focus on stuff that's safe. You know, it doesn't have humans that are impacted by it. It doesn't have planet that's impacted by it. You know, we, we've got to think sort of responsibly about it but we've also and and we also have to make sure that we're not kind of training these things to have the same kind of bias we have yeah. like there's yeah. a huge amount of of work that needs to be done that's going to create new roles that's going to create new jobs testing these things is a huge new area that'll open up anyone who's looking for white space there's so much white space that's sort yeah. of surfacing now uh, but how the human thinks about it so they'll just share with us if you, if you don't mind about critical thinking because we keep hearing the phrase critical thinking what how how do you how do you learn to critically think how do you test yourself as to whether you are critically thinking or not if you just believe or jump to conclusions based on something like you're not really exercising that critical thinking muscle if you're kind of asking questions in a curious way you're actively listening you're trying to really tease out what is going on here and then you're validating it, you're proving it, you're experimenting. It's not just taking it at stock value, it's prove this. Um, those, it's it's no different to the scientific method. That is a, a sort of formula that teaches you. I form a hypothesis, I form a, a way I wanna test the hypothesis, I evaluate the results, I draw a conclusion which either supports or invalidates, and then I do it again. <laughs> and And, you know, it's 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 uncomfortable for a lot of people. So I think it's going to tap into the kind of mental health uh, of like I I'm comfortable with my experience, what I know, you know, my routine, all of that. Uh, sometimes, you know, that I think that's going to be an area that that it was also another question I asked the school when I was evaluating. Like, do you do you help my child to build resilience? Do you have my, help my child to, 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 to kind of figure out more mindfulness? I think a lot of the things that have become quite popular today are important. Critical thinking is just something that people need to kind of look at the information that they're reading and go, is this right? Uh, not being kind of cynical, mm. but being more, being less kind of ex accepting. Uh, and there are people that we trust to provide that information for us. But you also want to cross-check it. Like, it's it's like I will read something from A, B, C, and D, and the kind of some of the the four options give me a kind of basis. Uh, but it doesn't mean I'm going to just believe it. Yeah. Uh, but it also doesn't mean I'm going to dismiss it. So there's a whole lot of thinking mechanisms that 
that change around and and i'm not describing anything that any you know this bachelor of science uh or actually you know gcse science degree isn't teaching and i'm not advocating for stem programs um i think you know i benefit massively from the fact that my father was in the theater and i learned a lot about humanities too um but I do think there is there is almost this curiosity that people have to have for all the different first principle disciplines. And, and, and I think when you go into these moments in time, this stuff's useful. Yeah. I wish more people had started talk, talking about the stuff when the social media uh, cascade exploded because people just believe what they read there. Yeah. Um, and, and they're not really educated on actually is this person saying something a real human? We've heard a lot about that over the last 10 years. So let's yeah. let's use this opportunity to like kind of do this differently. Well, growing up, it was always a case of don't believe everything you read. And now with social media, I mean, everyone has a voice. And so we should definitely not believe everything we read. And we talk about companies analyzing data and making use of data. But as people, we are all taking in all this data all the time. And we have to critically think about how we use each part. And we do we believe everything do we not believe how do we use it etc so i think for the it's the same for people as it is for organizations when it comes to to data um and and you know you've articulated brilliantly about how we should use artificial intelligence in our daily lives as well dale um mm. and how we take it forward both in education but also for our careers like with every conversation you and i ever have I go away wanting more. Normally we're having to say goodbye for a, to a conversation that we're having because we have another meeting that we have to go to. And, and you always leave me with a number of things to think about that I haven't done before. My mind gets blown at times. I don't necessarily understand everything you're always saying, Dale, because you're, you know, you work in such a, an incredibly advanced way when it comes to science and data. And it, it but I learn so much every time we speak. And today has been exactly that. We could easily carry on. We could do another podcast and I hope we do one down the line. But for everything that you've shared with us today, I hope that the listeners have really enjoyed it as well. And I wanted to just thank you so much indeed for your time because it's been genuinely amazing. It's been a pleasure as always. Uh, I love these conversations because, you know, it, it, it gives me food for like processing things. At the same time, it's it's always cool to share. And yeah, thank you very much for for bringing me in today. And uh, yeah, I've, I I definitely would uh, would be open to coming back and having further conversations. And you know, as I said when we started, like this this is going to take a left turn at some point, and we're going to go down a total rabbit hole. And it it did exactly that. Yeah. Um, there's new stuff happening all the time. Uh, in the space. So yeah, I, I expect even in sort of three months, we'll have an entirely new tranche of things that are going on. Yeah. But it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been wonderful, Dale. Thanks so much. Wish you, wish you well with everything. Thank you for listening to the Search and Succeed podcast. Please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'll see you on the next one.